This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a, a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, let's talk about your victory. So I know you say your career wasn't, you know, great, yada, yada, yada. Hey, you still won at a really high level. You went on the Corn Ferry Tour uh, at the Nike South Carolina Classic. Looking back, what kind of came together that week, and, and what memories do you sort of have of, you know, winning at a really, really high level of golf? That was 95. and 91 when I went out there, the, the year, I basically, the year Mr. Hillenbrand started sponsoring me, I, didn't, I hadn't had a lesson in 15 years. I just figured out a way to get it around the course, kind of knew where the ball was going, but knew how to get it up and in, and I had two seconds and two-thirds that year. Um, so, I, I mean, I knew I could play at that level. That was the and the guy played quite a bit of golf that year with Tom Lehman, who was the player of the year, and you know, he hit it farther than I did, uh, and he, he was a bit of a grinder, but he, he just, I, I felt for the first time in my life, like I could make it, like I, I really, truly belonged. I, I learned a little bit of self-belief that Greg Norman had talked about three years earlier in my one little uh, professional stint in Australia. Um, but then the, I then I went searching for the elixir and completely lost it, finished outside the top 100 on the money list the next three years, and then 95 rolled around. And, uh, and I was hitting it just awfully. I remember, um, I miss, I had a buddy of mine who worked at the golf course where I played in Phoenix, uh, come out. He'd never seen much of the United States and he just wanted to see, kind of see the South a little bit. So he came out for a little short stint to caddy for me. And the first three weeks we missed the cut badly and I was hitting it awfully. And then the fourth week, uh, we, we got to this place in Arab, Alabama, Cherokee Ridge golf course or something like that. And I ran out of golf balls in the practice round the first day on the eighth hole. And I was not uh, a very fun guy to caddy for. I was, I was m maniacal on the course from a behavior standpoint, not something I'm proud of, but something that anybody who played with me back in the day will tell you. And, uh, and I was so mad and I'm like, Patrick, that's it. Uh, I'm, I'm done. We I quit. We're not, I, I can't afford to fly us home, but we're not playing this week. So we had rented this little uh, hotel, had these apartments, this two bedroom apartment. We went to the grocery store. But God knows how many frozen pizzas and cases of beer and never left there again until Thursday morning. And I figured, you know what? I paid my entry fee. You're out here. I got to pay you anyway. Um, let's just go play. And I'm not going to hit a practice ball. I had once worked with a sports psychologist, Dr. Glenn Alba. He just published a really cool new book, by the way. Um, and he he said, you're just a horrible practicer. So just don't practice. Go chip and putt if you want, but don't practice for like a month. And when I did that in 19... 93 on the uh, on a Texas mini tour that I played. I won three of five events and finished second and third in the other two and didn't hit a range ball for a month. So I said, it's, it's so bad. I just can't, I can't do any worse. So I didn't hit a ball. We went to the first tee that Thursday. I was putting, looking at the hole, the first nine putting with my eyes closed the second nine. Somehow I made the cut after all those hours of practice that just proved completely fruitless. I had nothing. And I went out and made the cut. So we were driving over to Florence from Arab, Alabama, and any other state would be called Arab, but not in Alabama. It's Arab. Um, and we were driving to Florence, and I just had this kind of epiphany. This, like, you know what? Maybe I, maybe I could actually do something still in this game. And uh, we went there to Florence. I didn't hit. I hit eleven warm-up balls each day, only with a sandwich, just to stretch out the body. I chipped and putted on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. A fair bit, not a ton, but a fair bit. But I never hit a ball, and I went to the. First hole Thursday, and as a little dog leg left, and I sliced my tee shot into a hazard. Could play it, made par. 
Second hole is a driver, four iron dog leg left, par five. Uh, and I sliced my tee ball in the hazard, could play it and make par. We get to the third hole and I said, Patrick, looks like we're playing a slice today. And I stuffed a seven iron next hole, played a slice, shot 70. It was incredible. I was like, I, I am so bad and I just shot 70 as opposed to when I'm good and I shoot 78. So we didn't hit any balls the second day, uh, went out and shot uh, 71. And the second day, it was, it was more of a pronounced fade. Third day, it was just kind of a little slight fade. And the fourth day, it was a little baby draw. And I literally was uh, five under through 11 holes the fourth day. Um, I would teed off two behind Sam Randolph and a bunch of other players that had pretty decent names, Robert Wren, Morris Atowski, Tim Simpson. And uh, I birdied five or six. No, it was six of the first 11 holes on the toughest course we played. It was the toughest ball striking course we played. And the other five holes, I missed it inside 10 feet. So I ended up only winning by one, but I had, I just, I had no doubt in my golf swing. I knew where the ball was going because I didn't have a swing thought. I just set up, sensed the shot, felt the shot, hit the shot, like they try and teach you. And, and I think there was something so valuable in that to people who are out there looking for the elixir, go out and see what the golf ball is doing. Like Jack Nicholas always said, see what it's doing on the range and play it. And that's what I did. Of course, I tried the same theory again the next week, but there was a few days of partying in between uh, and shot 80 the first round. Well, you got to celebrate it, right? I mean, it doesn't happen oh, yeah. every other week. I mean, yeah, you, oh, you think yeah. you're allowed to miss the cut after your victory. That makes sense to me. But that's fascinating because, I mean, I'm trying to think of other pros who have, I mean, like I know Duvall said in his heyday he didn't hit a whole lot. You know, if the seven iron was going straight, he didn't sit in the range and, you know, try to make it worse, right? He went and shipped in putt. Carlos Franco watched right. him play an event once. We took like five warm-up swings from the parking lot and, you know, put it on yep. the first tee of the John Deere Classic and shot 68 that day. But well, it's it's interesting to say that, and I have to kind of follow up of, you don't find too many pros who quote-unquote get worse from practice. So it was it was it essentially, you know, what, what made it worse when you would go and beat balls? Was it just thinking too much or overthinking it? Was this just a way of simplifying it down that you had a good enough golf swing where if you just see golf shot, hit golf shot, there really was no point for you of beating 300 balls a day when you had a swing that was relatively grooved that that's true and if you can accept that that's absolutely the way you should um and if, if you're good enough to get there you're good enough to stay there and if you have to accept that and not be searching for the elixir but i was always searching for the elixir and tinkering as opposed to practicing with a purpose working on something uh picking random targets out there with each shot going through a full routine like you're playing in a tournament and making the practice shots matter um, I was always tinkering, looking for that one swing thought that would work, looking, you know, reading that next article, getting the, the one instructor down on the other range. You had a couple of minutes to come to come give me that instant cure and then and being completely lost and uh, completely lost at times where I literally I, I hit it so poorly that it was absolutely embarrassing. But there were times when I wasn't working on my swing where I didn't have the best stuff going. Um, but you knew, you knew where it was going. You knew you could play it and you found it and you hit it again. And, and you knew on a certain, you know, on a, on a hole that might've had a lot of trouble here or there, how to get it to one point or another. It might not have been pretty, but you could do it. And, uh, and I think there's a, I think there's a huge lesson there that we, so many people go out and they do one thing, they go to the range, they hit balls, they take her with their swing. They, they look for that elixir. They try that swing thought that, uh, Paul Azinger said, or Johnny Miller said on TV, or Nick Faldo, and, and, the, and they end up just playing awfully because they they don't know, they don't trust what got them there. Their instinctive, natural swing, and you go out, you hit a few balls, whatever that ball's doing, you go play it, and you, you're always going to have a pretty good idea where that golf ball's going. It may not be the way you want to play or the way you dream of playing, 
but you're going to know where it's going. And in the process, you're not going to neglect uh, hitting a few putts before you play or hitting a few chip shots and getting, you know, just getting a little sharper there. I was playing with my, like I told you, my son yesterday, and he loves golf. He's 23, probably about a 12 to 15 handicap. And, uh, and he's just been putting awfully. And I said, why is that? Cause he got new clubs about six months ago, new driver, he got the new Cobra driver and three with it. He loves, and he just beats him and beats him and beats him and he pounds the ball. And I said, every time for now on, before you go out and play, I want you to stand on the putting green until you make 10, five footers. They don't have to be in a row, but you have to make 10, five footers and just get a little in tune with the touch that it takes to, to get the ball close to the hole in the hole. And, uh, once he starts grinding on that, he'll start. He'll be amazed. Stand on the putting green tee and make ten five footers. It's not hard, and then and then go to the first tee, and you're gonna you're gonna shoot a lower score than you would have otherwise. I can promise you that. Very interesting, and I think there's some definitely some truth in that. Um, Golf Channel, you've been associated with the Golf Channel for so long now. How, you know, how did you get started with them, and then? As a follow-up, how did your career path go from where you are, uh, where you started, and where you're at today, doing a lot of the LPGA work? '95 uh, was the first year they came into existence. I was excited about the thought of the Golf Channel. I knew it wouldn't work. No, nobody thought it would work. A, a pay-per-view it was seven dollar a month pay channel when it first started. But uh, the very the second tournament they produced was a Nike Tour Corn Ferry Tour event. And, uh, I remember I went over and I just, I met the guy in charge, this guy named Keith Hirschland. And I said, uh, I just want you to know, I'm a, I'm a fan. I hope you guys make it. This is really cool. I said, if there's anything I can ever do to help, um, let me know. And as it turns out, the name Hirschland kind of rang a bell. And I, I said, you from Reno, Nevada? And he said, yeah. I said, I played junior golf against your brother. I said, matter of fact, you were our chaperone one time at a junior tournament, a, a statewide or a, a a national junior tournament that sent state teams to it. It was called the Eddie Hogan's cup up in Portland and our, our state director couldn't make it. So he sent Keith Hirschman, who was like 24 years old at the time to chaperone us. We never saw him. I think Keith was having a good time, but, um, so, and so, he, you know, we had a little bit of an introduction and, uh, and he said, yeah, whatever, you know, great. Good luck to you and all that. And then it was during the pro-am, uh, the next, the next week he, cause I played well that week on, I uh, got a little bit of TV time back when they were in 40,000 homes and nobody could have seen you. But the next week in the pro-am, he came around in a car and he said, Hey, uh, he goes, you play early tomorrow. We're on the air late. He said, uh, you know, you mentioned helping us. Would you mind coming to the, to the TV compound? We're going to put you to work. And I'm like, sure. That sounds cool. I thought, of course, he's giving me a microphone and make me a star. Well, he set me in the, in the production truck in front of this wall of little tiny uh, TV monitors. Back then, they were tiny. Now they're big flat screens, but they were tiny little monitors. And I sat between this massive guy named Carl Schlickspear, big old college football player. It simply goes by the name Big Man. And then a guy who was uh, a smaller guy who came from ESPN named Peter Esposito. And I sat between them. And their job was to identify who the players were, but they didn't know them. And none of the volunteers knew them to radio them in. So anytime they point, my job was anytime they pointed a monitor to identify the player. Now, typically that's a down the line shot and you're seeing a guy's butt. So you don't really know all the time, but you could tell by their mannerisms. And I, and I identified most of them at the end of the day, he gave me a slip to fill out and give my social security number and they pay me 50 bucks. And I'm like, no, if you take that and you know where to put it, I go, that was fun. I'll do this every time I can, anything to help you guys. I want you to succeed. And, and I think it's really kind of cool and fun actually. Um, Lo and behold, uh, a couple of weeks at the very, actually it was the very next week. They sent me around as a guest commentator. I had a, I had a, I had a headset, but no microphone. So I got to chime in every once in a while with their on course commentator and 
he was an English guy named Gary Smith and I made fun of him and they liked it. And I hung out with the crew and then it was middle of that summer. They were short one commentator and he said, you want to give it a try for a week? And I said, absolutely. And, uh, he ended up becoming my best friend and I, uh, he's now retired from TV production. His wife is the, uh, the CEO of the USOC, the United States Olympic committee. So he's living out in Colorado Springs and enjoying retirement, writing books, but he became my best friend, my boss, my mentor, and the guy I owe basically my career to. And, uh, and that's how it started. And it just kept progressing. I kept, you know, he always said, just keep your head down. Um, less is more. Uh, don't talk when the player and caddy are talking. And anytime I messed up, he let me know in no uncertain terms and made me better and made all the guys he trained better. You know, Frank Nabilo learned under him. Kurt Byram learned under him. Kate Cockrell learned under him. All people with pretty long careers from a broadcasting standpoint. So he did something right. And, uh, and you know, you keep your head down. You don't make any noise. And, and, you, uh, and, and if you do a good job, then then uh and and the fans like you more important than anything if they if they think you're credible and they like what you have to say then you keep getting re-signed it's kind of a kind of a neat thing then i ended up doing a lot of play-by-play for the corn ferry tour and some pga tour events um and then my a new boss by that time a guy named jack graham who's become a tremendous friend as well he came to me one day while i was doing uh, play-by-play at a pga tour event up in new york at the uh, turning stone and he sat me down at the bar and he said, uh, I got an idea. He goes, I need a male voice, uh, for my lead commentator on the LPGA. And he, he went through the whole scenario and you'll be our number one on course guy out there. You're really good at on course. He said, I don't think you have that much future as a play by play person. So give it some thought. And he goes, what's your answer? I said, well, I come from the school when your boss tells you you're doing something, you don't have an answer. You just say yes. So I said, I'm not happy about it, but I'll do it. And I've told this story a million times. Mike Wan loves it, the commissioner of the LPJ tour. But the second event I did that year, that next year when I became their, their on-course guy for LPGA, the second event I did, I got so enamored with how well the women played. But, you know, I, was, I watched in the, fa- in the past, but I wasn't really a big fan. And I got so impressed with how they managed their games. And Sandra Gall was going up. We were at City of Industry. Sandra Gall was going up against G.A. Shen, who was number two or three in the world, just removed from her dominant number one status. And it was David versus Goliath. Sandra Gall had a decent little amateur career at University of Florida, but wasn't was supposed to be a star on the LPGA. And she was going up against her in the final group. And I went out to that first hole, even though we weren't on the air for two and a half hours. And I watched them tee off. And I just, I just, I couldn't stop. I, there was a sea of people out there watching them. Um, and I, I walked along the entire way and had to phone into the TV compound and said, Hey, when we come on the air, bring me my gear. I'm staying out here. I'm watching this. And Sandra Gall won that day, uh, BGH and I think on the first playoff hole. And, uh, and it was just the most amazing thing. And I called my boss that night. It was midnight Eastern time. And I said, uh, Hey, just so you know, um, my next contract is going to have LPJ in it. You're never taking me away from this product ever. And, uh, and that's the way it's been. I, I absolutely love it out there. They are, they are incredible athletes, incredible people, so approachable, so great to the gallery. And, and they're starting to get their due from a publicity and from a recognition standpoint. Thank goodness. What's the biggest misconception you think golf fans in general might have about the LPGA? Uh, well, there's a lot, of, a lot of politically incorrect ones that you hear from time to time, none of which are true. Um, that really don't deserve uh, the, the yeah, forum to talk about. Like from a from a talent standpoint, yeah. yeah, yeah from yeah. a talent standpoint, uh, you hear it. You hear the men pro say. There's a recent art, uh, interview with uh, Jeff Ogilvie who said it. He goes, "They are so good. They are so good. 
they're playing, they're, they're, women are playing golf the same way men are playing golf. They just have to do it so differently because they don't have the physical power. He said, in some ways, they're better than the men. In a lot of ways, they're better than the men because they have to be so precise. They have to extract a score out of that golf course as opposed to pummeling it to death. Um, and and almost every male pro who's who's familiar with LPJ will tell the amateur golfer uh, of any skill level, really, but the amateur golfer to go watch an LPJ event if you want to learn to play better, if you want to learn to score better, because you're not going to hit a seven iron 220 yards like Dustin Johnson. Uh, you're not going to you're not going to hit some of the drives Brooks Kepka hits, um, but you can certainly learn how to manage your game the way they manage their games uh, on and around the greens, into the greens, from the tee, picking the side of the fairway. Um, it, it's, it's uh, I don't know if there is a misperception in that regard, uh, but the I don't think there's the appreciation there should be for how great they play the game and the scores they shoot from the positions they shoot where where most of the men wouldn't come close to that type of score. It, it's just astounding how good they are uh, from a precision standpoint. Are they as good as the men from, say, 125, 130 and in? Uh, well, most are, yeah. But see, now, 125, 130, and then a lot of them are hitting nine iron, and men are hitting gap wedges and sand wedges. So it's a different, you know, it's, it's still apples and oranges. Uh, but when you put uh, uh, the wedges in their hands versus the men's wedges from appropriate distances, uh, any iron for that matter, I say they're better. I say absolutely they're better because they have to be. They absolutely have to be. It's interesting when I do club fittings here at the shop for uh, for sub-70, how many times we uh, go and you know, the guys will be fit and will have questions on, you know, a, a male pros golf bags and how they're set up. And they go, let's think about it, you know, more from how the LPGA players have their bags set up, right? Let's look at some more high lofted fairway woods, replace some mid irons with some hybrids. Cause you're more in the swing speed of how they do it. And they're doing it for a living, right? I use that example all the time of trying to maximize your game out based on how the LPGA players have their bags set up. And of course, you know, this amateur player is not even close to as good as those women are on that tour or even Symmetra tour. But the concept behind it is the, the men are such freaks of nature, athletic-wise, distance-wise, it's not really obtainable. But if we can kind of manage our games more like a, a professional golfer from the Symmetra tour LPGA tour, I think a lot of golfers could get a hell of a lot more out of that bag set up than, you know, looking at what the men do. There are very few LPGA bags with an iron stronger than a five. Uh, there's a few four irons out there, and I think Daniel Kang is the only one with a three iron. Maybe Lexi has a three iron every now and then. Um, and there are a number of them. I remember uh, covering G.A. Shen at Kingsmill, her last win before she uh, basically retired and just started playing in Japan. Um, her longest iron was a seven iron, and that's not all that uncommon. And, uh, you know, you're, you're out there, and they're 156 yards away, and you see a head cover come off, and you're like, wow, she doesn't have much power. And then you look up, you look ahead to a tucked left front pin and the ball's five feet away. And you're like, well, you know what? There might be something to that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think every amateur golfer needs one, probably two, and, and wouldn't, be, uh, wouldn't be bad with three or four hybrids in their bag because they're easier to hit. Uh, they're more predictable. Uh, the miss hits are far more, uh, far more forgiving than an iron. And uh, and the way today's irons are manufactured with the jacked up lofts, a five iron from today, a modern five iron is about a three and a half iron from when you and I grew up. And uh, you don't need anything stronger than that. You're not, you know what? I don't care how good you are, how much you play. You're probably not good enough to hit a four iron solidly every time. Whereas if you hit a four hybrid, you don't have to hit it all that solidly to get a decent result. And if you do hit it solidly, you're going to get every bit as good a result. 
preaching to the choir on that one. I uh, mm-hmm. I go all the way up to a six hybrid in my bag, and I mean, I'm better with it. There's no question. I am better with a six hybrid than a six iron day in day out. You know, take your ego out of it. They're easier out of the rough. They're easier off yeah. tight lies. Everything about them is easier to hit. Thousand percent. Um, I was going to ask you, Michelle Wee. Uh, you know, you've you've covered the LPGA a long time. It's it's all the talent in the world, injury after injury. Do you think she's there's still? I mean, she's young enough. Is there still enough in that tank to kind of come back and be an an elite player? In your opinion? Uh, frankly, no. Um, she has the talent to absolutely. She's in a different phase of her life now. Just recently married, and now just announced they're expecting a baby girl, her and Johnny West. Um, but she did also say in that same interview, she feels like there's some unpro- uh, unfinished business there. So, if she has that inner drive to go out and do it, and put in the time and and, and pay the price to do it, then I, I think uh, she could become uh, a contender again. I don't know if she'll ever be the dominant one that she could have been had she not tinkered, had she not toyed with the swing, had she not looked uh, like so many other players for the secret. Um, yeah, no, she, she'll never have that authentic swing she had when she nearly made the cut as, what, a 12- or 14-year-old in, in uh, Hawaii. Yeah, um, that's like that. Yeah, yeah the man. That, that swing was so ridiculously perfect. And, uh, but if I think this time away to maybe forget about all those demons that kind of, you know, reared their way into her head through the years uh, from a ball striking standpoint and putting standpoint to maybe forget about them and maybe have a chance to literally get a little bit back more to your authentic, to your natural tunes, to the swing that you can trust, that you can sense where the ball's going. Um, there, there's, yeah, I'm not going to counter out. She's, she's way too talented. I'm not going to counter out. Um, but I, I just don't, that's to be a new bride, to be a new mom, to have a whole new way of life, to be now basically, uh, kind of, uh, removed from the one staple she had in her life, which were Bo and BJ, her parents to living in a, a normal, uh, adult life. Uh, she's always been an extremely well-adjusted young lady for someone who grew up in a fishbowl. Um, but to be able to pay that price that it takes to get back to that level, that's that's asking a lot when she has a very nice, comfortable, uh, great life ahead of her as a mom and as a, as a uh, as a former star, and probably more than likely is going to be a standout TV announcer. I was going to ask you about another golf swing, and I was doing my research for this, and I I've forgotten you had that association with natural golf, and then you know Bryson kind of comes on the scene with a lot of those a lot of those principles. Uh, do you think? That system was a little bit ahead of its curve, and your ideas or your thoughts on Bryson's golf swing, and, and what about that motion uh, did you find appealing to work with a company that was kind of you know promoting that single-plane swing and, and trying to simplify it down a little bit? It wasn't a, uh, so much a single-plane swing. It was a single-axis swing. Uh, the hands, if you, if you stand down the line from behind a player looking at the target and the ball between, uh, between them, um, the, the, the angle from the club head to the shoulders was one straight line of arms and shaft. Uh, and he does that. He does it closer than anybody. Um, almost everybody with a full swing with a longer club, even when they start with the angle between the arms and the shaft, you know, the low hanging hand, um, they, they return to the ball from a single axis position. So I, I love the, the theory of eliminating basically one lever, not a lever in the swing because you don't lose any power. He's proven that. Um, but eliminating one variable in the swing that you don't need, uh, a timing aspect. And that, that's the part I love. It was modeled after Mo Norman, no matter what the uh, founders of it originally said. Jack Kirkendall was the original founder. And then a guy named uh, Andrew, uh, I can't remember his last name, bought the company. And they, they said it was 
they had this theory and then they found Mo Norman and he seemed to fit the theory that that's all BS. It was, it was all modeled after Mo Norman. Um, but I, I, I think I, I, there are a lot of things I've never understood that are conventional, uh, conventional musts in the golf swing, but never uh, made logical sense to me. One of them is a nine finger or eight finger golf swing, be it an overlap or interlock uh, or golf grip. I, I never understood why we do that. And I haven't talked to a single teacher in all my time who's made me, uh, say, you know what, you're right, and I'm wrong. Uh, I think if you have 10 fingers, every time you take somebody with a nine or eight finger grip and you have them go hit chip shots and maybe a few uh, bunker shots with a 10 finger grip, the first thing they're going to say is, man, I feel like I have so much more control of the club because you do, uh, quite honestly. And I, I, I don't think Bryson has a 10 finger grip, but he does have the fat grips to hold it a little more in your, in your hands instead of your fingers. Once again, eliminating a variable and not, in my opinion, not costing you power. That part I get in arguments with, uh, with, with conventional instructors all the time about, I don't think it costs you power to grip the club a little more in your hands and a little less in your fingers. I think it gives you more control because you grip everything else in your hand. Every other sporty, sport you play where you hold uh, something and hit a ball with it in your hand, you're holding it in your hands and not your fingers. Um, so I like that. I like the single axis. Um, I, I loved the, the, uh, the body position at impact that natural golf taught Bryson doesn't do it, but that is basically trying to stay as square to the ball at impact with your body as you can, as opposed to turning out because you can watch player at long hitter after long hitter and every single one to a person does it right at impact or just the instant after impact, their hips stop turning. And a lot of them like, uh, like Rory McElroy, uh, Lexi Thompson, a lot of the longer hitters, their hips actually counter rotate a couple degrees right through impact. And that is a lesson that one of my teachers taught me growing up at Las Vegas Muni that uh, it, it goes back to just running in the street in the play yard or, or on ice skates playing crack the whip and all these kids hold hands and they go running down a line and the guy on the inside stops and the guy on the outside goes flying around, usually ends up with some scabs at the end, but goes flying around at a speed that you couldn't generate on your own. And I think much the same with the golf swing is when that core stops when the inside of that crack the lick stops, it allows the outside to travel the fastest. And that's what I think was one of the secrets to the power you generated if you, if you use those natural golf fundamentals at the time. Do you, if you're going to go 10 finger grip, do you need to have a bigger grip than kind of a standard industry golf grip in your opinion? Does that make that 10 finger grip easier? It makes the transition easier. Yes. And I, I my, my grips are, I've, I've gone down a little bit. They were Bryson size, but they're still the jumbo. They're almost the arthritic grips that you would buy at the store. Um, and yeah, I can't, I can't play without them. When I, if you first try it and you're going to be stubborn and not hit chip shots first and just go out there and try and take a grip, you better put a larger grip, a much larger grip on there. You're just going to see the golf ball going so much further left than it did before. Cause it really does. It adds power and it adds club head speed and it's going to hook and it's always going to hook or it's going to go more left than what you would normally hit it. Put it that right. way. Yeah. Right. Uh, so but, of, yeah. You have to have a bigger grip to kind of balance that out for lack of a mm-hmm. better word. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, interesting. Interesting. It's, uh, you know, there's, I always thought there was some, it, it can simplify a very difficult process down. And I, you know, I think that's kind of what, what those, those systems, as you've kind of stated, kind of can help golfers with. So it's, it's always an interesting question of the debate back and forth on that one. Um, got a couple extra here for you. Some quick hitters and we'll get you out of here. Thanks again for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, Two or three best golf courses you've ever gotten to play in your life, and what makes them so great architecturally? Uh, the one, the most architectural gem I ever played was in Perth, Australia. Still to this day, my favorite city in the entire universe. Um, 
It was called Joondalup. It was a Trent Jones senior course built out of a rock quarry long before string song came along in the phosphate mine uh, here in Florida. But uh, it was built out of a rock quarry and it was an absolute just uh, just a archi- ar- uh, architectural masterpiece. I mean, it was it was incredible. Uh, remember almost every hole and there's there's it looked like one of those cartoons I used to have when we were kids and you're hitting from on top of a mountain to a cloud you know um, that, that just massive cliffs uh, right behind a green rock wall it was just it was it was really something um, and you can't you can't I got to play the AT&T twice uh, as a as a qualifier back when, in the, the few events I did play on the PGA tour um, you can't discount the natural beauty of, of Pebble Beach and the subtlety of, of even the holes that are, are much less dramatic that people say, ah, you know, holes uh, 11 through 11 through 16 are just blah and holes, you know, one through five are just blah. They're not. There's a lot of subtlety to them that I think are uh, can be appreciated. Uh, Riviera is just probably one of the best courses on the face of the earth. Um, and then I just got to cover and got get reintroduced to Royal Melbourne when I was down there for the president's cup. And I've ne- it was, it was the anti Pete die. It is, it is such a brilliant, brilliant design that it will always stand the test of time. And it was the anti Pete die and that it looked so unintimidating, but it is so brutal. It is absolutely so brutal to try and hit, uh, post a score on that course. And, and when you look at it, and you walk around it, it's like, ah, oh, this is nothing. But then you see the little rolls of ball stakes here and there, and they're not unfair. It's completely fair. Uh, but you have, to, you have to be so extremely precise and control trajectory, control spin, control uh, the angle at which the ball lands on the green, and, and all those things is just absolutely amazing. And, and uh, I mean, it, it's rugged looking, it, uh, it, and it meant to be. That's the way golf is on a, on a link style course. But it is an absolute masterpiece. Is there one or two still on your hit list that you want to go out and play and, and, and see that you haven't been able to yet? Uh, I'd like to see Sand Hills out in Nebraska. Uh, obviously, so good. Yeah, so I've, good. I've, you've <laughs> played it, have you? Yeah, I'm, I'm a member at, it, uh, at Dismal River, which is right next to it, so I'm crazy enough to drive the 11 hours five times a year to, to go play in that region because it it's – I went out there once and I was blown away. It's just – Sand Hills is my favorite golf course in the world. But that whole region of Prairie Club, Dismal River, Sand Hills, it is just incredible. From an experience, from the golf, from the whole nine yards, it's unlike anything you've ever seen. Yeah, I'd like to see Cabot Links. I'd like to play there. Um, I haven't played Bandon Dunes, but I feel like I have because I read so much about it and I hear so much about it. But I would like to get out there for a, for a two week trip and play every one of those uh, someday. Um, Cabot Links, of course, up in Nova Scotia. Uh, yeah out on the cliffs, Eastern Canada. Um, you know, obviously you like to play Augusta. I worked it for four or five years for, uh, the CBS online coverage, 15, 16, and walked it quite a bit, never played it. Uh, kind of like to play that, but again, it's not one I feel I, I need to play because uh, you feel like you have played it just by watching it so much over the years. Um, but that, that's, those are the, the main, there's one up in central Oregon now uh, where they have goats caddy for you. It, it's kind of like a golf destination place. I can't remember the name of it, um, but it looks like, it looks like a tremendous, it was a David McClay kid course as well. And it looks tremendous um, back when he was designing, you know, cause he designed great courses starting with Bannon dudes. Then he kind of went uh, and he admits that he went too far on a lot of courses. Then he came back to his, uh, his, his, uh, his background and started building great courses again. And this one looks like a great course. I can't remember the name of it. 
uh, Pine Valley. Have you ever been out there to play? Have not. No. I me either. No. I mean, that one's supposed to just be, you know, there's a reason it's number one in the world all the time from an architectural standpoint. It's supposed to be great. So, yeah, there's uh, there's so many good ones out there, and I love the direction it's going with sort of bringing width back to the T and angles and like kind of what you were talking about with Royal Melbourne. I I, I hope that trend line and. Uh, golf course architecture, kind of what Core Crenshaw brought in uh, in the mid '90s with Sand Hills, kind of continues. I think it's such a more interesting way to play golf. Um, I do, and I think I do the too. President's Cups showed that, right? Of yeah. Well, how can this hole be that hard for those skill levels and its angles and its win? I mean, the course can change every day. I love watching them have to kind of not just bomb hit it to the middle of the green. It's it's angles and in and. and variety and different shots every day I, I love that style of old school architecture which hopefully that the trend line continues with that because i think it's a wonderful way to play golf and all skill sets can play it a little bit too right those courses allow for a 15 handicap to kind of run something up there at least to get on the green and have a chance at a par versus force carries and stuff like that absolutely so. and there's there's one that's uh that's reasonable and quite affordable and 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 every golfer in the world would have access to it called seaview outside atlantic city in Galloway Township, where the LPJ plays their shop right every year, I mean it might it might tip out at six thousand yards, maybe six thousand yards, and you hit in eighteen holes, you hit every club in your bag, and you hit it with sheer terror in your heart. It is it is just a masterpiece. Best course they play, and it is old school golf, and it is just flat out awesome. Well, and the last one I have for you here, the PGA show is coming up. I'll be down there. Is there a couple good golf courses in the Orlando area uh, that if we're traveling down there, we should check out of uh, of some good architecture and some good golf down there? Yeah, if you like subtlety, uh, my favorite one is Grand Lakes, the Ritz course, where they just played the, fa- they played the father-son every year. Um, that's a Greg Norman design, and, and it's, not, it's, got, it's not Royal Melbourne because it's way too plush for it. But uh, if you like subtlety in a design and not uh, and not the Fazio die type dramatics in a design, you'll absolutely love just the subtlety in and around the greens and getting it in the right spot off the tee, dead flat, flat as a pancake. All all of Central Florida is. Um, but it, it is that's that's my favorite. Uh, Grand Cypress. They went a little over the deep end when Jack came in and redid the greens and made it a little bit of goofy golf. But it's it, the, from a tee to green standpoint. A great design. If you get a chance to get on Isleworth, it's kind of like you have to see it once, but you never really want to go back because it's just too hard and the bunkers are way too penalizing. Um, Lake Known is a good, good, solid golf course. Uh, but uh, I like Grand Lakes is the best, and that is one you can get on without knowing a member. It's a, it's a day, high-end daily fee course, but a great golf course. Um, yeah. Have you, have you played the Winter Park golf course since the redo? Winter Park 9. I've lived here 16, 17 years, and I hadn't played it till about three weeks ago. My son lives out there because that's where he goes to school at UCF, and he plays it all the time, and he talked me into coming out there, and I can't get there often enough now. It's just an absolute blast. Yeah, but, that one's – I heard it's just great, and it just uh, makes sense. It's it's fun golf from what I've heard. Like you can then walk and grab a beer and a sandwich afterwards. Like it's just old school meets new school in the sense of it's not just about the golf. It's also about the experience a little bit there too with that beautiful little town. Tiny little clubhouse. You walk up, you pay your greens fee, you go to the first tee, you wait till there's an opening, you play with three strangers. You might be playing with a captain of industry or a guy who's uh, who's you know fighting for his last two two pennies. But uh, and every almost every par four is drivable for a for a big hitter. Um, but you can hit it. A beginner can go out there and enjoy it and not get in anybody's way. And you walk. It's flat. It's easy. It's an hour forty five minutes. And you go in, and they have a guy grilling out burgers and hot dogs, and you have a beer, and, and you call it a day. And it's uh, it's really 
the way people should be introduced to golf, actually. It's fantastic. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate all the insights. It's been a, it's been a pleasure from my side having you on. So thank you and uh, best of luck with everything you're doing in 2020. And uh, we'll look forward to watching you on the golf channel. Thanks, Jason. I really enjoyed it. I love talking golf, obviously. Passionate about it. So thanks so much. Great questions, too. I enjoyed it.